what it means working in DNI once you're doing it. You never mm -hmm. fully understand what it is until you are doing the job and how challenging and difficult it is mm -hmm. and how taxing um, the work is. Diversity and inclusion can be touchy. It can be overcomplicated and sometimes very nuanced and hard to get to grips with. And that's everything we hope this podcast won't be. Welcome to the Digest from Diversity, where we take a frank, direct look at the stories of global allies, activists, and advocates of DNI, understanding their journey and motivations to make the world a more diverse and inclusive place to be, as well as the ways in which they're currently doing just that. My name's Helen Maguire, and I've been active in the DNI space for many years. I'm the co-founder of Diversity, which is a tech platform that helps businesses achieve better diversity. And I can't promise we'll get everything right or cover every angle on this podcast. What I can promise is that we'll learn together ways to make better approaches to the sometimes tricky and deep topic. In this episode of The Digest, I spoke to Rodrigo Catano Texera, who's the head of DNI for Latin America at Uber. Rodrigo's been on quite an extraordinary personal journey, turning his difficult start into professional success. He's now based in Mexico, and he's come somewhat full circle from his beginnings in Brazil, and he's now making huge strides in the DNI space to achieve acceptance and progress for himself, his colleagues, and his community. So let's get started. Rodrigo, hello, how are you, and where are you right now? Hey, Helen, I'm good. Um, I'm in Mexico City, 8 a.m. here right now. I'm not a morning person, so I'm still a bit, you know, <laughs> still waking up. Uh, other than that, I'm great. It's sunny here in Mexico City. It's a nice day. Um, and this is one of the things that I like about here. Like, it's winter, and it's, you know, 20 degrees or 22 degrees, so... <laughs> So nice. Yeah, perfect. And a uh, nice start to the day. And yeah, sorry, sorry for getting you out of bed a bit early or at least um, no, awake and uh, <laughs> moving. Um, but yeah, lovely to have you on the podcast. And, you know, thanks so much for joining us. I know we've had a, a sort of brief chat beforehand and um, was really captivated by the journey that you've been on and really looking forward to kind of digging into that and, and sharing it on on the podcast. Um, but I guess I, to start off with, and, and if it's not kind of too much effort for you to, to think about at this time of the morning, but where, where, where did your kind of journey start? How was it for you? Um, I know you're Brazilian um, originally. Yeah. Um, how, how was it for you growing up in Brazil? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm, uh, as I said, I'm Brazilian. I'm from a city kind of close to Rio, like, so like 200 kilometers. So it's not a, a small city because it's half a million people, but it's a very, I would say, provincial city in a way because, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's a very new city. You don't have a lot of people from outside living there. Um, and my family has been living there for, for many years. So life was okay, I would say. Uh, you know, my, my parents, it was a very, I would say, traditional family. Yeah. Um, they, there was me, my sister, my parents, and they loved us very much, but they also had a very specific vision of, <laughs> of the world, I would say, um, and what life was like, uh, and me being gay didn't really fit with, uh, that vision in a way, because, uh, also my mom is very religious. So 
this was always a bit contentious. Other than that, I would say it was good, you know, they loved yeah. us very much. Um, and I went to military school. So also that, you know, being a gay kid in military school in the early 2000s, it was not the best thing either. <laughs> Once yeah. again, at least. And, and, and when, when did that first come up? Um, because, you know, as you said, your, your parents are quite religious and, um, yeah. you know, I'd love to kind of explore what that feels like in for you particularly in your family but also in South America you know in Brazil um at at that point um particularly yeah sure um so I realized I was gay I think when I I was maybe 13 14 so Mm -hmm. around that age I started to realize that I was gay but I've always been very feminine right like I always been very feminine and I always liked quote-unquote like girl things Mm. so everyone told me like you know oh you're gay but I was like I didn't even know because I was a kid right like as a kid for me it's like you don't know this kind of stuff so So I even even when you were young even when you were kind of pre pre pre-13 that was the general oh yeah because once again it's uh it's all about gender um expressions right and especially I think many years ago like in the 90s when I was growing up Mm. uh, gender expressions were very in a box right it's either you do this or you do that like I never liked soccer Uh, my voice was always a bit you know kind of um, feminine once again quote unquote the way I walked the way I moved my hands so all of that was always very stereotypical um uh, 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 better saying not a stereotypical man and especially in a yeah. latin america context where you know you had a very macho man culture um so yeah so that was a little bit so people would assume things that, but i didn't know that i was gay because you know i was a kid right um mm. when i started and i grew, grew up in church and as i said um i went to military school so it was to very heteronormative environments that I would say extremely mm. homophobic environments. The church I went, uh, I remember like the ministers saying on the, you know, on the sermon things like, oh, gay people have a demon in their body, like they go to hell and stuff. So oh, it was difficult. Like once I realized I was gay, it was quite difficult. So I never yeah. really talked to my parents about it because I knew they wouldn't accept. So it was kind of that elephant in the room that everyone knew but no one discussed it yeah. um that, that and, must have been quite awkward and and what yeah. you know what 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 did that do I suppose to your sort of day-to-day behavior did that change you I mean becoming a teenager is hard enough as it is but having to deal with that around that kind of environment how did that affect you as a person your your, your behavior I suppose yeah, I mean, I think this affects people differently. For me, um, particularly, I I kind of always wanted to talk, but at the same time, my family is very Latin in a sense of nothing, like you don't talk about problems, you just sweep things under the rug and pretend they don't yeah. exist about everything, not only about this, right? So, right. And I was raised like that, so culturally, that was the avenue that I took as well. Uh, but definitely the teens, uh, my teen years were quite difficult for me. 
um looking back i think i might have some kind of you know depression but i don't know because you know this right. was the, er, like 90s early 2000s yeah um talked about that stuff yeah so especially in the environment like in the environment that yeah. i was so um yeah but uh i was kind of always a good student and you know i come from um a poor family so i i managed to go to like military school which was one of the best schools in my city but it, like my parents could afford because it was sub- almost for free because it was a right. public school but yeah. like you had to pay a little bit so I kind of, you know, threw myself at school in a way. Uh, and this was something that my parents also wanted because they knew yeah. that education was the only way for me and my sister to get a better life than, than the one we had. So it was kind of like, oh, let's keep doing this because, you know, I was once again, quote unquote, a good kid. We just don't talk about that, right? <laughs> we don't need to talk yeah. about that. And, yeah, and and you you know you mentioned that that you were quite gifted at school, and and in some ways that also set you apart from your your community. Yes, definitely. I was one of the very few people in like my neighborhood. I lived in a like the outskirts of my city. I was one of the very few people that didn't go to the you know public school on the corner that to be honest, wasn't good, right? It was underfunded, yeah. you know, crowded with students. So um, that definitely was something that um, that helped me, the fact that my mom always focused on our education, you know, and this is due to my mom. Like my dad didn't understand why education was important, uh, but my mom was the one that always said, no, we have to get them scholarships and good schools and stuff so they can, you know, have a better life than the ones than the one we had so in terms of your kind of upbringing through your you know your childhood your teenage years you you always felt sort of quite separate quite different is what I'm hearing um and there wasn't really an opportunity for you to discuss that there wasn't really an opportunity for you to um resolve that in any way with your family at that time how how did that feel for you yeah um yeah it was i think there were several things right um one was knowing that my family would not accept me the other was as i also grew up in church that internal battle that i had myself with asking god to remove this demon of my body right. because you know it was what I, I would hear on sunday you know at, at church right uh it was at military school so it was always trying to in a way, blend in as much as possible, but blend in in a, in a sense of, I hope no one notices me because I know <laughs> if someone notices me, what's going to happen is that like at school, they would bully me or stuff like that, right? So it was always trying to be under the radar as much as possible um, so I could be safe in a way. Um, but as I said, I, I changed a lot in my teen years and I think I really got you know depressed but I didn't know what that was at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So then when I got to university, things got a better, I would say. Yeah. So I was going to say, is, is, <clears throat> is that when things started to change for you? Um, and, and how, how did that manifest on a, on a day-to-day basis? Did you become more yourself, I guess? Yes and no. I think that like even my own, 
uh, I don't know if battle is the right word, but even my mm -hmm. own path on accepting myself was something that I started to, you know, accept that I was gay. I think I was maybe 16, 17. And then when I was, you know, I got into university and I, I guess I, I sensed the, or I accomplished a sense of independence, independency yeah. in a way, even though I was still living with my parents. But then that's when I told them that I, you know, I, I didn't want to go to church anymore. Um, and, and actually, I didn't believe in God, right? That I was an atheist. So this was a huge thing as well. So I guess this was a big on my personal life. This was a big way of yeah. putting down some, you know, some barriers. Um, and, but again, all of this took some time. And yeah. at university was when I started to tell the broad people, hey, I'm gay, right? Because yeah. until then, just very few close friends. I mean, once again, everyone knew, but I would verbalize that to only very few people. Um, and then at university, I started to say, hey, like, you know, it's actually fine. I can't, I don't mind talking to, to anyone about this because it's just who I am. So, but this really was a journey that took me, you know, several years. Absolutely. And even listening to you talk about it now, it, it feels quite scary to me. You know, you've really had to turn the tide on pretty much everything that you've been brought up with and certainly everything that you're yeah parents believe in and I think you know when we talked initially about this you made a really important point around um, you know diversity and inclusion in general for, for gay kids which is that almost categorically their parents are not gay so if you come from a, a you know an underrepresented group which might be racially or, or ethnically decided usually you'd share that with at least one of your parents but in the case of being gay usually you don't that's right, yeah. Um, and it's something that is, I would say, difficult. even to be honest, to this day, right, if you get people that are, you know, accepting and that have, like, let's say a, a straight couple that, you know, has LGBT friends, if they have a mm. kid, they never imagine, you know, from what I speak with parents, they're always, you know, once they get pregnant, they're always imagining what that kid's going to be like, right? When they grow up, how life's going to be. No one imagines their kid to be LGBT, right? Like, let's be honest. <laughs> we live in a heteronormative world. Like, everyone, when they think about, oh, my kid's going to do this, that, and get married, have kids, like, they think about a straight person. So they I think do. even for people that, you know, are accepting of the LGBT community, like allies, it, it can be a shock because it's not what you were expecting, you know? Uh, and it's um, I, I believe that this is changing, um, and especially today with the younger generation like Gen Z. I think uh, the last stat that I read about thirty percent of them identify as LGBT. Wow, which is a lot. Um, yeah, compared to you know older generations that maybe it's like five ten percent. Yeah. Um, so I think the word is changing, but yeah. this is a shock. And then when you have a family like mine that. You know, the the matter of effect is that my beef is not with religion, right? Because religion is not the problem. It's just with fundamentalism. Like in my, for example, like with my, my mom specifically, that it's that thing that you can't argue because it's not on a rational basis, right? Everything yeah. is about, oh, but, but you were wrong because 
I'm right and you're wrong and nothing that you say can change that and you There's will always no be wrong no matter yeah. the date yeah. that you that you show because and then someone is you know like the minister or whatever is twisting uh words and doing stuff that doesn't make any sense but anyways so um yeah i think even for parents that are allies of the community it can be tough you know because yeah it is the word that we live in that you're supposed to be straight you know it's what you see on the movies it's what you see on tv on billboards it's what you see on the books like everyone most of people around you were like that so it's so interesting that you say that because yeah I mean I guess you know I've I've definitely got gay friends most people do um and obviously through through my work meet um people on, on the spectrum of all all kinds of um you know all kinds of ends and and which ways round and whatever um but yeah I mean absolutely true I I, I suppose you you don't think of that I've got three young kids and of course, it enters my mind that that one of them might be, but it's not something you expect. And it's certainly not something that you, I don't know, you try and move them towards in the same way that a family might try and move someone towards being straight if they are gay, let's say. Um, yeah. You know, the, the sort of ideal, as you say, the sort of norm is, is being straight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. it makes... Uh... Yeah, it, it can be challenging. I, but I, I think I hope times have changed. Like, I don't, you know, hang out a lot with the parents or with kids. So it's something that I don't have yeah, a no, lot I, of knowledge. Yeah. But I hope times have gotten better. And at least there is more access to information for LGBT yeah. kids. Like, on, you know, just on the internet, right? You can find so Absolutely. many things. And Absolutely. It's very and different it's than when accepted. I grew up in the 90s that I didn't know anyone gay, right? The, the few gay wow. representations i would be we would watch on tv were those gross character yeah. characterizations yeah. that were for you to laugh at them right yeah. um and they were people you know that whatever like would be really bad stereotypes and those yeah. were the references i had and today is quite different so i think uh, it's probably better today. No, I hope it is. It's yeah. I would say from where you were to to where things are now. Um, you know, for for most um, or for many communities, certainly there's there's been an improvement, yeah. and as you say, at least information and very interesting. The Gen Z report. I'd love to see that. Um, I I see that more and more when I speak to teachers actually about kids mm. and you know teenagers and you know kids that are sort of twenty years, twenty five years younger than me. There's definitely more. Um, fluidity around it I would yeah. say um and I think that that's really interesting but I, I want to go back a little bit to your journey because you know mm. things did change for you when you went to university thankfully yeah. um and you began to accept um who you were and, and talk about that more openly um mm -hmm. and and you made a move to Europe eventually so tell us a little bit about that yeah, so I always wanted to go abroad, um, but I never had the money. So when I was in m maybe midway through through school, um, I got a full time job because my my I went to university in the evening, so I got a full time job and I managed to save enough money for a few years, um, and I got an internship in um, in Budapest uh, in a like in an Indian company to be a recruiter uh, there. So I went. Yeah. Uh, I had the year contract and at the end of the, that contract, um, you know, a friend of mine that had moved from Budapest to Brussels, uh, someone quitting her company, they were needing, they were in need of a recruiter. So I 
went through the process, got that job. So I moved to Brussels, stayed a few more years there. Um, and, you know, then I moved to Amsterdam. So I overall, I stayed almost nine years in Europe uh, between Budapest, Brussels and, uh, and Amsterdam. Um, and that was quite good because then I think it was really the, you know, in a way, <laughs> my full independence, I would yeah. say, even though in my city, I already had my, you know, financial independence for a while, but it was still the city that I grew up. Like, yeah, you bump into someone that you know on the streets and stuff. And then when I moved to Europe, it was much easier to be my full self because then I was just there by myself, right? And it's a whole different ball game. I mean, that must have been quite a culture shock for you as well. It was that I think I was so excited um, that. It didn't even come through, like, I, I didn't even notice that much because, you know, it was something that I wanted for so long that, yeah, I think that the most difficult thing was English because I mm. didn't, I, I spoke English, but not really. And I, and I was a recruiter. So, you know, my job mm. was interviewing people. And I remember, <laughs> like, in maybe the first two weeks, my boss sat me down and was like, if you don't improve, it will be fired. Like if you don't improve English, you'll be fired because their English is not good enough. So Bit of a challenge. Um, yeah, like, okay, great. Um, but that was the most difficult part because I would, yeah, I, I remember like at 6 PM when I would go home, I would be so exhausted, like tired with headache and also had the headache. Maybe my first month I didn't do anything, even though I was so excited, but because I was just so exhausted of working in English the whole day, um, that was, I think, the most difficult part. But obviously, you know, from my small city to Budapest, like living, you know, with Hungarians, it was very different, right? And um, realizing yeah, I, I was not imagine. white, that was also something that took me some time because in Brazil, I'm considered white, right? How race works in Brazil. But then in Europe, or basically everywhere else outside of Brazil, I'm not white. Um, and then ha having that and having that realization was also, you know, a big... Um, a big thing in life for us because I was like, oh, I don't have white privilege anymore. <laughs> reality. That's, so yeah. that was I a mean, big thing. Did, did that um did that affect your your day to day? I mean, was that something you you had to deal with? Was there any sort of racism around that? Did you did you find uh, I've had a few situations of you know the things that you know happen to people of color or known white people like being searched by the police. I remember this once I was in a train uh and it was the train was packed like the there were maybe 50 people in the kind of cabin that I was and they searched three people me a guy that looked Filipino and then another that looked Arabic and everyone else that was white <laughs> was not served right like randomly they chose the three people guys of color uh, so that that kind of thing um you know microaggressions comments uh from like immigration officers at the airport um from landlords, like those kinds of things that I've experienced. Uh, at the beginning, I didn't even realize that it was because of this, but you know, with mm -hmm. time when I started to realize, oh, this is actually, then I, I looked back and I saw several things. Um, at work, thankfully, I've never really experienced anything like that, or at least I haven't noticed, uh, but in the day-to-day -day life, yes, I have. So that must have been pretty challenging. I mean, you're, you know, you're dealing with a, a whole different country, a whole different language. Um, you're also adjusting your kind of mental attitude around, around being gay and, and presumably probably 
you know, getting involved in in the gay community there because finally you you know you had other people um, who you could um, you know join up with and and be a part of a group for once, and then you get hit with the with the race card. <laughs> Yeah, but again, as I said, at the beginning, I didn't notice it. It took me a few years. And when that happened, it was a conscious decision on my side. Like, do I want to stay in Europe and face this? Or do I go back to Brazil right. where I have all my privileges, right? And yeah. I made a conscious... I mean, even though I'm not in Europe today, <laughs> I moved to Mexico City six months ago. But um, it was a conscious decision to continue there. And to deal with it, right? It's like, hey, it is what it is, right? So, and I wanted to stay there. Um, but I do think it has made me, if I'm being very honest, a better DNI professional because I yeah. was able to understand a much more nuanced conversation on race than I think I would ever have been able to if I, if I had always been in Brazil and always had the, the the privilege that I had, you know. So in that sense, today that I'm working with DNI, because this happened three years ago on that I moved to DNI, right? Yeah. Today I'm like, oh, this was a good experience because I can see that I can do my job much more effectively yeah. uh, than if I would have done like five, six years ago, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I I, I completely get that, just seeing that perspective um and experiencing it you know as you say um genuine experiences around that and so you ended up in in Amsterdam in Europe and um what what took you from your recruitment role into Uber eventually yeah so I joined Uber as a recruiter um five years ago and when I joined Uber it was the first company I joined that has a that had an ERG like a pride ERG so I got yeah. quite involved with it. Um, and I was leading the ERG shortly right after I joined, like a few months later. So I was leading the ERG for EMEA. And um, two years in my job at Uber, uh, again, I was really involved with the ERG. So I was kind of, you know, people knew me as the, the pride person as well, sometimes even more than as a recruiter because I was really involved. So there was an opening the DNI team. Um, I applied for like, it was a junior position. I applied and I got the role. Uh, so this is how I made my transition. You know, it was actually yeah. through the, through the ERG. And yeah. I was quite happy because at that, at that point in time, I was in Europe as a recruiter, maybe for seven years, but in my life, I had been a recruiter for already, if you call my time in Brazil, like maybe 10, 12 years. And I was really not happy with it anymore, you know. Um, so it was really good that I, I managed to get the chance to, to, to change jobs. And leaving the recruiting field can be quite challenging because you don't have many transferable skills into other, um, other fields. So I was really happy that not only I managed to leave recruiting, but also to something that I never thought would be possible, you know. Yeah, because I mean, DNI is such a new is such a new space, and and, and just for people who aren't aware, ERG um, Employee Resource Group, and this, oh, yeah. you know, th this is quite a that's also quite a new thing. And and um, for Uber, how long had that been running before you joined? Or was that something that you really kind of pushed? 
No, no, um, there was already. So in EMEA, in Amsterdam specifically, there had been a full-time DNI person since, I think, beginning of 2018, maybe end of 2017. Yeah. Um, and in the US, it had been longer. Uh, yeah. But they, uh, but the ERG, even if there was not a formal team, the ERGs were kind of, especially the women and the pride ERG in EMEA were already, I would say, you know, there, right? They were not as strong as they are today, but they were already, yeah. you know, doing things. Um, so there was already a movement and in the US, it was longer. And uh, and how, you know, how did that, because I suppose, you know, you've moved, you've done all these kind of moves around and you've got in somewhere and suddenly, I mean, how did that feel kind of being part of that and, and having that as as such a huge part of your work identity as well, as opposed to where you'd come from, where you had to hide it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. So I think at the beginning, I just moved to DNI because I wanted to get, you know, out of recruiting. Um, yeah. And what I, you know, what I tell people when they ask me about people that want to become DNI professionals is, you know, you can read articles. I can't tell you about my day-to-day, -day, but you're only going to know what it means working in DNI once you're doing it. You never mm -hmm. fully understand what it is until you are doing the job and how challenging and difficult it is mm -hmm. and how taxing um, the work is. Um, so, yeah, so I think me moving to DNI was actually a perfect culmination of, you know, everything. And it was like, hey, Everything that uh, that I've been through will actually help me be better at this job, right? Will actually help me be more effective and understand better um, the the different identities and situations. So it was quite good, you know. It's something that now, rather than being something that I hide, is actually a good thing for for, yeah. for me, right? It's like, hey, yeah. this actually helps me do my job well um, it's, it's a huge yeah. it's a huge benefit and I think um you know did did it did you finally feel safe I suppose in that in that space when when you when you managed to find this this niche almost that that suited you so perfectly um I, I already felt safe I would say that like at Uber, at my previous job, I was already feeling safe, if I'm being honest. Um, because, as I said, the, the first years when I was a teen, I really struggled with my identity. But then at school, when I started, I, I was a research assistant for a professor that studied gender and more specifically LGBT. Um, and, and some. Uh, so that really helped me is studying like Foucault, queer theory, those kinds of things that yeah. really helped me understand better. And so those, I would say, years that I was the research assistant actually was what really made me feel comfortable in my yeah, own yeah. skin. So at work, I was already feeling quite safe. Uh, the move to DNI, I wouldn't say that it, you know, changed that so much because yeah. I was already feeling quite safe at you, work. You got there. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and you mentioned that, you know, your, your kind of work world opened up almost because you were gay. 
um, because, you know, the women in the room essentially wanted a, you know, gay best friend or whatever it was. Yeah. So um, that must have been a, yeah, that, that must have been quite a different experience to your kind of acceptance when you were back in Brazil. Yeah, that again, that was back in Brazil, right? I, I thought that at work or when I was doing internships uh, and at university, um, I always felt safe, much safer than I felt at home uh, because not only, you know, once again, I think I had a lot of privilege, right? I was mm. white, I was mm. smart, um, I was like art articulated, I knew my shit, so, you know, and I was not threatened to women because once again, I'm feminine, right? I, uh, in how I talk and how I walk mm. and stuff, so... Um, I think women never really felt, you know, um, felt that I was in a way a threat to them as you can yeah. be when you are, you know, with a man like, a, yeah. um, and in the field, I said the psychology. So my internships were mostly with women because it is a field that is dominated by women. And yeah. so it was, it was fine for me to say, Hey, I'm gay. Like, and people would be fine with that. Right. Yeah. Um, however, I felt that today it's much different that it's not, you know, because there is this, that when you are gay, sometimes people have that stereotype of you and they like, Oh, I want a gay best friend because the person is happy. It's funny, understands fashion. So it's not about accepting you as a person It's more about a yeah. stereotype that people want mm. to have. And I feel that has changed a lot from, you mm, know, my exactly. years as an intern and today people, Actually, they they like me for who I am um, versus, you know, having that stereotype. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, that that's sort of where I was going with it. It's, it's just being um, for you that that kind of long journey to, to being who you are, essentially, and to bringing that to work and um, to your friendship groups and, you know, uh, professionally, personally, whatever, whatever yeah. it might be, so that you're not put in a box one way or another, mm -hmm. essentially. Yeah, correct. Mm. And and so talk to us a little bit about the role now. Um, you've you've kind of climbed meteorically in in the DNI space at Uber, which is not a surprise given all of your experiences and background and clear kind of passion for for what you do. Um, so where are you now, and, and and how did that come about? Yeah, so I'm currently leading uh, diversity and inclusion for Latin America at Uber. Um, and how it happened was that I was in Europe. So I started as a program manager in, in the DNI team. Then I became a business partner. And then, you know, I started leading DNI for EMEA. Mm. But after COVID, I just needed a change. Um, and there was this opportunity because we kind of restructured our team. So I could stay in EMEA, like leading the, uh, the topic there as I was, or I could come here. So I decided to come here just to have a change after COVID um yeah it's been great like uh, it's been good to to be back in latin america after such a long time um even though it's not my country but it's like it's you know yeah. in, in several ways it's it's quite similar um and it's been good to do dni in a different way as well because as dni is so culture depends so much on yeah. culture here even though we talk about the same things it's different so it's, it's been quite nice 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I always kind of see it as as being a, a kind of spectrum of maturity, really. And I suppose yeah. I don't know a great deal about um, DNI in in Latin America or Central America. What are the mm-hmm. main differences between you know what you were doing in EMEA and what you're now doing in, in LATAM? Yeah, um, I think if you talk, you know, because Uber ends up being a bubble. Uh, I think in society, when you talk about gender, for example, EMEA might be more, like Europe specifically, might be more advanced than Latin America. But when Mm. you talk about Uber, um, here we have much more female leadership, for example. Like our female representation here is much better than in Europe, right? Um, Right. When you talk about race, I think here at least people talk about it, which is very different than most European countries, that mm-hmm. people don't even want to talk about that. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, it, it, it's it's different depending on what you're talking about, what kind of demographic or identity you're talking about. Uh, but for example, the thing that I'm doing on race, I would say here are much more advanced than the things I was doing in, in, in EMEA overall, uh, because here the conversation is already a bit further. That's but when it comes to, I don't know, yeah, maybe people with disabilities, there are, you know, it's a bit different. Yeah, I think it really depends on what yeah. we are analyzing. And here there are different challenges as well. So, for example, socioeconomic is a huge thing in Latin America, right. which in Europe is not that much of a big deal, given that, you know, you have a good social welfare in most countries, yeah. right? In many countries, I have a good social welfare. Uh, so even if people are working, earning minimum wage, or if they are unemployed, they they can still have a decent life, which is not the case in Latin America. So this is a, a big topic that I'm trying to see how it can work, which, you know, in Europe, it was not a thing that I was doing. Yeah, that that's super interesting. And um, it's not it's not something I would have presumed. I mean, we, um, you know, we, we work in, in English. So South America and Central America are, are not key areas for us. Um, and I, I wouldn't have presumed that there was a better conversation around, um, you know, around race or, or race, race and ethnicity that's pertaining to that area than there would be in Europe. That's that's really interesting. And do you think that um, because of that, there is less racism is it is it is it beneficial to, to underrepresented groups to have that at the forefront has it made a difference i don't think there is less racism i think it's just more called out uh because right. once again especially obviously in, you know in the uk this conversation exists but if you get france this pain netherlands it's like oh everyone is equal race doesn't matter right. so here like in many countries obviously I, i'm talking in general but you know if you go to each country is more nuanced but um the 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 country that the conversation is most advanced is brazil um and i don't think there is less racism i think it's just more called out which is important right because then at least it's already in that thing that people are calling hey this is racism this is not anything else you know let's let's name this what it is and it is racism right um yeah, and great to hear on, on the women front as well. Again, something I would not have presumed. Um, and what about LGBT plus? Um, where, mm-hmm. where are you all on that? Yeah, I think that then Europe, 
once again, society-wise, it's probably a bit more advanced, even when it comes to rights like marriage or things like that. Um, but it's not like what it was many years ago. So when you were on the streets, like I, I go here on the streets of Mexico City, you see like LGBT couples holding hands on the street and things like that. But obviously I'm also in a big city uh, and in, I mean, in an area with, you know, a lot of expats. So I know that if you go to the countryside, it's, um, it's different, especially some regions of like Mexico or Costa Rica or Brazil that can be quite religious. Yeah. Uh, that, so, you know, there are different realities depending on where you are. But I would say that in, in the company, it's the same here. Like at Uber, I don't feel any difference. Uh, but in society, I would say that's probably a bit more, um, you know, the, the conversation and the, the quality around equality on LGBT is a bit more advanced in, uh, in a few European countries. Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely makes sense. And I think those regional differences within a country are, um, are, are so important to understand. I mean, you know, coming from the UK, I, I can I can see that. And I'm sure that resonates with anybody in, in any country mm -hmm. in the world. The, the big cities get it. It tends to kind of filter down eventually, but um, takes some yeah. time. Um, and, and what, you know, what's your main aim while you're over there, I guess, both personally and professionally? Yeah, professionally, my main aim is around race. So this is the biggest uh, topic I'm working today is to make sure that everyone understands the, so it's on education, making sure everyone understands what race looks like in Latin America. And people yeah. don't think that race is something, you know, from the U.S., that they yeah. see how that manifests in their day-to-day -day here. Um, and how can we get, you know, more inclusive and how can we be an anti-racist in the context that we are living in? So that's my main goal professionally. Um, personally, it's just to, to develop myself as a, you know, a global DNI professional. This is the goal that I have to really yeah. be that person that understands how to operationalize DNI in Latin America. It may an APEC because this is something that we don't have. We don't have people that understand. Mm. We don't have a lot of professionals that understand DNI globally and or I would say outside the US at least. Um, so either people are are experts in how it works in the US or in the UK mm. or in Brazil, but they don't understand that notion. And that's the goal that I have for myself to be that person that really understands how to scale global programs um, and to travel. Cause I don't know, I don't really know like the Caribbean and a lot of countries in Latin America. So that's the goal that I have here. Yeah, I, I love I love that term operationalize DNI because I think for a long time it has just been something that you know, I'm not going to say people do as a hobby exactly, but it certainly was more around sort of events or initiatives mm -hmm. or training or something like that, which which is all very well and good, but it really only scratches the surface, doesn't it? Yeah, that's like, that's almost performative DNI, right? I, I mean, yeah. those things are important, but they're not the, the things that make real change and make yeah. sustainable long-term change. So um, that's not like my goal as a DNI professional, right? I want to make sure that I make sustainable uh, long-term change and that doesn't come through fireside chats and unconscious bias <laughs> training. I could not agree more. Um, and, and how are things back in Brazil? Do you manage to get back there much now? What's, what's the situation? 
Uh, no, I haven't been uh, in Brazil for a while. Um, I might go this year because I haven't been there in many years. So I might go uh, now in 2022, you know, after COVID, I think they're better. Yeah. I might visit there. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you're feeling, um, you know, you're feeling kind of your, you, you've reached the end of your journey, at least personally, from an acceptance perspective. Um, yeah, yeah. I think with myself, I've been, um, I've been comfortable for many years. It's just the question of now making sure that those demons don't come back, I would say. So a lot of therapists still need it, but you know, I'm, uh, I'm in a much better space than I, than I was for many years. Yeah. That's such a good, that is such a good thing to hear. And yeah, demons, demons, given, given your context and background is, uh, yeah, an, an interesting term, I think. Boy. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> uh, well, um, thank you so much, Rodrigo. It's been an absolute pleasure to hear your journey and, and to understand all the hurdles that you've, you've managed to overcome to this point. I think it's quite extraordinary. So thanks so much for sharing. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it was a really interesting conversation. Thank you, Helen. Thanks and have a lovely day. You too. <laughs> so that was Rodrigo. And uh, what a fascinating, extraordinary journey he's been on to get to where he is now um, and to make something that he hid for such a long time. Now, such a huge part of his life and work um, on a day-to-day -day basis and, and to be recognized for that. Um, I love that chat. So yeah, thank you. Thank you to Rodrigo from Uber for sharing um, all of his experiences and particularly his insights around Latin America. And as you know, if you listen to this podcast regularly, we are all about allies, advocates and activists in the DNI space. And we would love it if you would share a little rating or a review um, wherever you find this podcast. And of course, get in touch with us head over to diversity.io um, if you want to be part of this or um, anything else that we're doing. And we will catch you soon. See ya.